And when he came the first time, lots and lots of people, including religious people, including his own covenant people and the leaders, were clueless about him and indifferent to him. And today, as we are into Advent season and Christmas season, let's be honest, it's the same way. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him, doesn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. But you know that non-recognizing, that indifference says nothing about him and his worthiness and his true greatness. But it speaks volumes about those who who ignore or reject him. Christians often say at this time, keep Christ in Christmas. And of course I'm all for that. But sometimes I think we should start with ourselves and say, keep Christ, the real Christ, in our Christianity. And always make sure that in our worship, in our ministries, in our activities, what we do, it's all about Christ proclaiming him and giving him the first place. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. He alone is worthy of our attention, our interest, our allegiance, our love, our worship, our devotion. And so this morning, I want to preach Christ, his person and work on this second morning of Advent in this Communion Sunday. And I want us to do that by focusing on three aspects of his saving, redeeming work. Three reasons why he came. And for that, I invite you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, and this little epistle says even more than we'll, of course, be able to cover But it has three statements about why God the Father sent his Son to be our Savior. And the first one is in chapter 3 and verse 5. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. That's the first reason. He appeared, he came so that he might take away, he might make an atonement for our sins. Secondly, down in verse 8, at the end of the verse, it says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. So he came to take away our sins, and he came to destroy the devil's works. And then thirdly, over to chapter 5 and verse 20. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, literally, him who is real, so that we may know the God who's really there, 
the only God who really, truly exists. This is why he came. Jesus Christ is the king who saves by a cross. He's the king. He's the Savior. Jesus, that name means he's the Savior. But the title Christ, remember, means end-time king. So every time we say Jesus Christ, we say, we proclaim again, he's the Savior king that we so much needed. Remember the passage from Isaiah that Pastor Keith read. To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, he's going to govern, he's going to be the king. The government will be his responsibility on his shoulders, and he will reign on David's throne and over David's kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness only and all the time, from that time on and forever. And so what was it that the angel Gabriel said to Mary? You will conceive and give birth to a son and you're to call him Jesus. He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And so what was the first message from Jesus himself as he began his public ministry filled with the Spirit? Mark says Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God that you've been waiting for has drawn near. So repent. And believe, put your trust in this good news. But when Israel rejected her Messiah, as we saw at the beginning from the Gospel of John, things took a mysterious turn. And I don't have time to explain all of that now, but Jesus began to teach in parables concerning the kingdom of God, indicating that it wouldn't come at once. In fact, that he would go away for a season, go away for a time and then return to the earth to bring the kingdom of glory with him. Even in the institution of the Lord's Supper, he taught the disciples when he said, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So for now, we keep praying, thy kingdom come. It's already, and it's not yet. For as we see, his work on the cross signaled the sure triumph of the kingdom of God. And even now, those who are born again by the word and the spirit enter into his kingdom. Jesus taught Nicodemus that in John chapter 3. And so the apostle Paul could write to the Colossians, for he has rescued us, past tense, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, the only other realm and kingdom there is, and every human being inhabits one or the other. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. 
The New Testament is perfectly clear how all of this is going to end, too. As things come to their inevitable climax, as described in the book of Revelation, when the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And that's what prompts the hallelujah chorus in heaven. But I want us to focus even more directly on what the letter of 1 John and these three key verses say about why Jesus came from heaven and what he accomplished. So again, back in chapter 3, verse 5 of 1 John, you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins and that he appeared to destroy the works of the devil and that he came to give us the truth about the only God that really is. We needed Christ to be our Savior because we were guilty and we needed him to take away our sins. We needed Christ to be our Savior because we were in bondage, we were enslaved to sin. And we needed him to come and to counteract and to overcome all the works of the devil. And we needed Christ to be our Savior because on our own we are in the dark, ignorance and folly, especially when it comes to the things of God, and we don't know the way to peace. We needed a Savior to guide us to find true shalom. As one of the classic Christmas hymns put it, long lay the world in sin and error pining. Till he appeared. And so first of all, you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. We needed Christ and each individual person needs Christ to be our Savior because we're guilty. And once the Holy Spirit turns the light on, we know we're guilty. That's why people run and hide suppressing the truth and unrighteousness deep down. We need it desperately. We want the forgiveness, pardon for our sins. And there are so many passages we could turn to to show how the work of Christ accomplished that. How he atoned for our sin so, sin so that he could secure our pardon. But this morning I wanted us to take a look for a moment at, at a compelling passage from Colossians chapter 2 beginning in verse 13. Paul writes there, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, so you're, you were helpless, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins, including Christian, the one that keep nags, keeps nagging at you and haunting you. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken that away, nailing it to the cross. 
Commentator Douglas Moo gives a helpful explanation of that phrase, the charge of our legal indebtedness. You see, all we human beings had, as it were, signed an IOU promising God perfect obedience because this is what we owed God as his creatures, made in his image and made for his glory. This IOU of our obedience, our devotion, our love and trust. But we rebelled and sinned and fell and we human beings, none of us, we did not fulfill that rightful obligation that had a claim upon us. We reneged on our IOU and this document, this IOU document has come to stand against us because of God's decrees, because of God's commands that we broke, that we failed to keep. Paul emphasizes the negative verdict of the IOU by stating it twice. It stood against us and condemned us. And again, if the Holy Spirit has worked in your heart and life, you know what that condemnation feels like. But surprisingly, Paul also insists that God has, in fact, canceled the debt. How? How could a righteous and just God just cancel the debt of our reneging on the obedience that we rightfully owed him? How could he just take it away, take away our sins? And the answer comes in the last phrase of verse 14. God nailed it to the cross. It's that verse from here in Colossians that is echoed in the compelling third stanza of that well-loved song, It Is Well With My Soul. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought that my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. He took away our sins. God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That glorious, wondrous exchange that took place at the cross. And so we do sing about it. Jesus paid it all. So all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. Jesus the King came first of all to take away our sin and guilt. And on that cross, as he died instead of us and in our place, he said, it is accomplished. It's finished. The battle is over. And Jesus had won. Hallelujah. What a Savior. But there's more. And so we come to the second reason why he came. 
And what I want us to see also is the connection to what we just said. 1 John 3.8 at the end of the verse says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. We needed Christ to be our Savior because we were helplessly subject to the devil's works and enslaved to sin. And so look again at the next verse in Colossians 2, verse 15. He's just talked about the cross, and then he says, because of the cross work, having disarmed the powers and authorities, the hostile spiritual forces, including the devil himself, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, by, of all things, the cross, where it looked like they were winning. They weren't winning. Ultimately, they're never winning. He triumphed over them, not only by the empty tomb, but primarily and foundationally by the cross. This is Christ the victor over all the forces of the devil. And how did he achieve this victory? It was through his atoning work. Christ is a king who saves by a cross. Think also of what we find in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night. That's Satan. He's been hurled down. And they, those who believed in the worthy Lamb, they triumphed over him, over the accuser. By what means? By the blood of the Lamb. What was the source of the triumph of the saints over the great accuser? The soul-cleansing, sin-atoning blood of the Lamb. And in Revelation chapter 5, we're told that the Lamb is worthy to possess and control the title deed to the universe because of His redeeming, ransoming work. Because He was the Lamb who was what? The Lamb who was slain. The Lamb who was slaughtered in sacrifice, giving his atoning blood. That's how he wins. And that's how we triumph over the devil. Do you begin to get a feel for how all of this works? All of Satan's claim upon us, so to speak, it's, it's secondary, it's derivative. In one sense, bogus, and ultimately, futile. Because all of Satan's power or hold over us is related to how he tempts us into sinning, bringing death, bringing guilt, bringing through our sinning which he tempts us to do and then accuses us once we've done it, bringing all of this into our consciousness and experience, including the fear of death. And it's because he accuses us of our guilt before God and in and of ourselves we are guilty and we do sin 
and we do deserve death and all the miseries of the curse that justly fell on us because of our rebellion. That's his whole game, his whole strategy. But God, who is rich in mercy, graciously sent his son to atone for all of that. To make amends, to make a satisfaction, an atonement for all of that sin and guilt. Paying all of that debt. Canceling all of that legal indebtedness that I owe you. So to put it bluntly, in a Latin theological phrase, from now on, once you're covered by the blood... Satan's got nothing. Martin Luther put it this way as he thought about Satan's accusations against him. And in this, putting it this way, Luther performs a kind of spiritual judo move on the, on the devil using his own supposed strength against him. For Luther, being accused of the devil, says to him, Every time you insist that I'm a sinner, just so often do you call me to remember the benefit of Christ, my Redeemer, upon whose shoulders and not upon mine lie all my sins. So devil, when you say that I'm a sinner, and this is a Christian talking, you do not terrify, but Comfort me immeasurably. While we were yet still sinners, Paul says, Christ died for us. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And if you know what the communion service really means and what the cross really means then these verses ring true in your heart and in your conscience. There is therefore now no condemnation, none, for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation now I dread. We sing that too. Who will bring any accusation, any charge, against those whom God has chosen. It's God who justifies. Just a reminder, he's the supreme judge. He gets the final verdict. So, I don't know who you're worried about bringing a charge and bringing an accusation when the supreme judge has said not guilty and declared you righteous. Who is then the one who condemns? Well, it's not going to be Christ Jesus. It's Christ Jesus who died more than that who was raised to life. You know what he's doing right now? He's at the right hand of God interceding for you based on his sin-cleansing cross work. There's no condemnation left. There's no one left to accuse because of the cross. So do you see that not only has Christ taken away our sin and guilt by his cross, but that by that same cross he conquered the devil and neutralized his accusing, condemning 
fear-producing work. Remember what Pastor Keith reminded us, us of last Sunday from Hebrews 2. How the Lord Jesus, by his atoning death, broke the power of the devil, disarming him yet another time when our Savior included even death. And that is the last great enemy. But our Savior included even death in his victory as one of his conquered foes. For once our sin is atoned for, death loses its victory, grave loses its sting. Paul talks smack at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 when he talks to grave. Oh, death, where's your victory? Grave, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, but all of that's been atoned for. All of that's been taken care of. Thanks be to God who gives us that victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And now even death for a Christian is transformed. The dread of death is overcome. Not the challenge of dying, but the dread of death itself is overcome for the believer redeemed and rescued by Jesus. And now the Christian comes to think of death like Paul did. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. A departure now, it's called, to be with Christ, which he says, oh, that's going to be better by far than the toils and the troubles of this sin-cursed world. And there is even more. For all the miseries we suffer in this wicked, weary world ultimately come down from the divine curse that was laid upon us because of our sinful rebellion against a perfect and perfectly holy God. But do you see it now? If that sin, if that curse-inducing guilt is atoned for and taken out of the way, then that would mean that the curse would be lifted too. I was struck when I came across this idea once, and of all places, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In connection with the treachery of Edmund and the White Witch's claim upon him and the winter she caused ever since, Aslan explains it like this. Though the witch knew the deep magic about the condemnation and the effects of the curse, there is a deeper magic still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. One of the most striking things about the new heaven and the new earth and the way it's described, the new heaven and the new earth, which will be the eternal home of all who have been saved by the blood 
of the worthy lamb is what's said in Revelation chapter 22, verse 3. No longer will there be a curse upon anything. For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him. One of the stanzas from the beloved Christmas song, Joy to the World, that we sang this morning, echoes this. No more let sins or sorrow grow, or thorns infest the ground. What's that an allusion to? Genesis 3, where the curse is pronounced and thorns now will infest the ground as Adam, the farmer, tries to do his work. It's a symbol of the curse. But when the Lord Jesus comes back, and ultimately joy to the world is about his second coming in glory, no more let sins or sorrows grow or thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Everywhere now where there's curse, blessings going to overtake it and overcome it. Every now, every place now where there's sickness, there's going to be health. Where there's separation, there's going to be relationship and reconciliation. And where there was death, there's going to be life. Where there's hate, there's going to be love. Far as the curse is found, the blessing will come. Every trace of the curse of sin will be eradicated from this new world that the redeemed will inhabit. Let me ask you this morning. Which effect of the fall are you most looking forward to forever being rid of? Think about that this Lord's Day. Which experience of the curse, effect of the fall, even still as a believer in a fallen world, not yet redeemed fully, which effect of the fall are you most looking forward to forever being rid of. I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among men. That's his new tabernacle. And he'll dwell with them. They'll be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more death, no more mourning, crying, no more living with chronic pain. For the old order of things has passed away. That's all gone. And he who was seated on the throne said, I'm making Everything new. Then he said to me, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Jesus Christ appeared to destroy the works of the devil, and he will. Hallelujah, what a Savior. In fact, it looks like I'm trending so that I might actually finish on time for a change. It's a good thing. 
So now I'm going to add something to jeopardize that just a little bit. But I always, I often think of in, in analogies. And some of them, especially when they're kind of only half formed in my thought, like this morning, are a little bit risky. But when I think about Jesus, and what an amazing Savior, King, and conqueror he is, I think of, and I've done almost, the last video game I think I played was Pong, or something like that, or, or you know, Asteroids, or something like that. But I know a tiny bit about him. And you'll have, you know, your, your warriors, and it's always a battle, isn't it? It's often two kingdoms battling with one another. And you'll have your warriors, and your warriors will have these different weapons or tools or instruments or powers and all of this sort of thing. And for the kingdom of God, it's sort of like this. And by the way, now I'll muck it up and mix it up even more. I thought about the last two Avengers movies that I saw, which may, you know, surprise some of you. But anyway, you know, first, Thanos, I think, and that's an uh, abbreviation of the Greek word Thanatos, death, there, you may not have known that. Anyway, Thanos, it's like, he does what he does, and half the, or I can't remember what the fraction was, of the cosmos goes out to existence, and a lot of the superheroes die, and they just disintegrate. And it's like, well, that's, that's really bad. They're gone now. That's, that's one thing you know for sure in a superhero movie. Once they're gone, they're gone. <laughs> but of course, in the next movie, and at the climactic, apocalyptic battle, it's like, wait a minute. And they start all appearing again. They start all showing up again. In the kingdom of God, Death isn't even in the end. When Satan's done his worst and through sin he's brought death upon us, it looks like, well, he won that round and he won over those people. But the resurrection means that, now wait a minute, they're all back. They're all winning again. Except this time it's for real. And the kingdom really wins and evil's put down forever finally and it's not going to get a sequel. One other thing, there's always, okay, a certain character has certain powers. Well, and I don't mean, I mean this reverently, Jesus is Savior King. Let me tell you what he, powers he has. He has all of them. And let me tell you what can hurt him. Nothing. Not even death. If you had someone who every time, yeah, 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 I killed him, I killed him, oh, he's back. Or now I can't even hurt him. That's what we have. That's our Savior King. But it's not story, it's not fantasy, it's not virtual, it's real. The third reason, and I'll just say it briefly, that he came we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, is real. On our own, we get it wrong when it comes to what God is or God is really like. But the Word, He actually became flesh and He lived among us. The message, the revelation from God became human. And He was God, full of grace and truth. 
No one has ever seen God, but it's God the only Son who is close to the Father's heart. He has made Him known so that Jesus could say, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know the truth about God because He lived among us. What an inestimable, inestimable treasure it is to know the truth about the only real and living God and to know how to become right with Him. And we know those things because the living personal Word, the Lord Jesus, has come and has given us the living written Word, our Bible. Hallelujah! What a Savior! I want to proclaim Christ I want you to see he's amazing, he's glorious, he's great, he's gracious, he's powerful, he's good, he's gentle. No wonder when we get the glimpses into the what's going on in heaven, they're worshiping and their theme is worthy is the Lamb. So here's the conclusion and the application to all I've been trying to say. Jesus Christ is the divine human end time king sent by the Father to save us from sin's penalty, power, and presence. That's the truth. What's the application? So we ought to trust in him because he's the only one who will really save. And we ought to give him our supreme allegiance because he's the only true Lord. So if you're an unbeliever, repent and entrust yourself to him because he's good and because he's great. And if you're a Christian, walk worthy, the Bible says, of him. Live in a way that corresponds with who and what he is and what he's done. Walk worthy of the calling with which he's called you into his kingdom and into his glory. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Father in heaven, may we know Christ truly. May we be amazed at him. May we love and trust him. And may we humbly, with a sense of wonder that we get to do it, live for him and serve him. In his worthy name, amen.